this is part two of a two-part series that we're doing here, and we're going to make some general assumptions based on last week's message. And so if any of those assumptions don't ring true in your mind, you're going to have to go online to www.vlchurch.com and uh, find out what the, why those assumptions were made. And so we're going to run with some of those themes today, so I just encourage you, if you're going, why are we assuming that? Well, we're assuming that because of where we were last week. Last week we were embracing the idea that we, as disciples of Jesus Christ, are supposed to be extending the effective will of God on earth. That's how we define the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. We defined it as the effective will of God on earth. That the kingdom, the reign of God, is designed to be an ever-expanding reality built by disciples of Jesus Christ. We are the workers of the field who bring the will of God to bear on earth. We are God's growth agents. Now, as I promised last week, we're going to talk about the ways, the, the practical ways that we can learn how to extend the reign of God into every nook and cranny of this earth. We're going to learn the practical ways to bring the kingdom to bear. What's interesting about human nature is we're always searching not for the overarching truth. We're always searching for some underlying nugget that will really prove us wise, You know, sometimes the best way to understand things is just to go with what's intuitive, what just makes sense, what's on the face of things, just to look at the the clear picture. But too often we as humans, we we want some hidden wisdom. We want a nugget that lies beneath the surface. And when we get that nugget that lies beneath the surface, we really think we found something. But uh, most often that nugget that lies beneath the surface is just reiterating the intuitive truth that we already knew the thing that we already understood. And so if you're looking today for complete uh, underlying nuggets on how to bring the reign of God to bear, you are going to be sorely disappointed. I apologize. You will have to go mining on your own. But for me today, I I just want to talk about the intuitive truths that we have. And let me just illustrate this underlying nugget point for just a minute. How do you lose weight? No, don't answer. Here we go, right? Right? Somebody said exercise. We're getting there. Yeah. How do you lose weight? You, you, wonder, you wonder what I'm going to say about this. Well, all of us have our way that we like to lose weight, you know? Somebody's like, well, I go low carb, right? Somebody else is like, well, I do the Jenny Craig thing, or I, or I do Nutrisystem, or, or I start fasting and see how far I can get, you know? I want God to do some supernatural liposuction. I've been praying for that. Whatever it may be. But what's the truth about losing weight? How do you lose weight? You burn more calories than you take in. That's it. Now, how you choose to do that is up to you. But if you want to lose weight, says someone who is always on the journey, you burn more calories than you take in. Everybody with that? That's the intuitive truth. That's it. How you choose to do that is all all the rest. And so we're always looking for something underneath the surface. Well, if I just eat enough of this berry... That will stop my, my, my body from taking on calories. Everything will just flush my system and I'll be great. Well, just, just the key is, is, is to burn more calories than you take in. And that's why we're talking about intuitive truths this morning. So if I say things today and you say to yourself, I already know that and I do it, you are a Pharisee. Jesus said in in Matthew chapter 5, what? Unless your righteousness exceeds those of the Pharisees, you will not enter the reign of God. 
You won't enter the kingdom of heaven. You can't get in. People who don't want to learn anything or have anything reiterated to them are Pharisees. Don't be a Pharisee today. So if you hear something that you already know, then that's good because that'll help you do a better job of putting it into practice. Cool? All right. Go and turn with me, if you will, to Matthew chapter 4. It was where we began last week. And as you're turning, and I didn't give this scripture to you, Tina, so we're going to do something on the fly, all right? We're going to start in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. I'd like that up on the screen in the NRSV version. Uh, Well, that's what I prefer. Some of you read the NIV or ESV or whatever else. The beginning of Jesus' ministry is summed up in Matthew 4, verse 17. And this is where we began last week, and it just says this. From that time, Jesus began to proclaim, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And then last week we skipped down to 23 and we said Jesus calls his disciples and then Matthew reiterates what Jesus' ministry is all about. Verse 23 of Matthew chapter 4, it says this, Jesus went throughout Galilee teaching in the synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. All right? Proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. And where we ended last week was to preach the message and then go back to verse 18. And say, what does he do between these two major verses about proclaiming the kingdom? Well, he calls disciples. He calls followers. And I'd like to read those passages uh, right here in verse 18 and following. As he, Jesus, walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fish for people. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. As he went from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, in the boat with their father Zebedee, mending their nets. And he called them, and immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. And where we ended last week was to say that to bring the kingdom of God to bear on earth, Jesus needs followers. He needs disciples. As Pastor Cindy mentioned weeks ago, he doesn't just need fans people with a general nebulous affinity for him. He needs people who really, truly want to follow him. Now, I could just go from that and give you a bunch of Pastor Matt's folksy wisdom about how to follow Jesus in your life. But I want to tell you something. If you read the rest of Matthew, the Apostle Matt does a much better job explaining what it means to be a follower of Jesus than I could using all of my pent-up folksy wisdom. What takes place immediately following Jesus calling his disciples happens in Matthew chapter 5 through 7. And who knows what takes place in Matthew chapter 5 through 7. Say it out if you know it. Sermon on the Mount. Do you see the the pattern the Apostle Matt has laid out for us? Let me explain. Jesus calls his disciples, and Matthew gives us a very short understanding of what Jesus' ministry was all about. Look back down at 23 and following. So Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and curing every disease and every sickness among the people. Fame spread about him throughout Syria, and they brought those who were sick and those who were afflicted with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he cured them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, from beyond the Jordan. Now look at chapter 5, verse 1. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up to the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to them. Then he began to speak, 
and he taught them, saying. Okay, do you catch it? So he calls his disciples to them to him. Matthew says Jesus begins to gain fame by doing all these powerful deeds and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. And then he calls his disciples and says, all right, listen up. Listen up. This is the biggest uh, sermon Jesus preached. It is perhaps the most famous compilation of the sayings of Jesus. He called his disciples first to learn his mind to learn lessons from him. You notice he doesn't unleash the disciples on the unsuspecting world by just saying, come with me, I will make you fishers of men, and then 10 minutes later goes, all right, go minister. What does he do? He calls them aside, and he says, listen, I'm going to give you the mind of God. I'm going to teach you how God thinks and what God thinks about human action. And what follows is the most famous sermon in history. Seriously, I don't know that I'm going to do this, and I don't know that I ever will do this, but one day I want to do this. One day, I want to go all synagogue on us and just get up here and start reading Matthew chapter 5 through 7 and not say another word. I want to do that one day because there's enough in there that we would all just go, oh. Now, we'd have to read it with some inflection and with a little bit of interest, otherwise people, it would be a snoozer, you know what I'm saying? But you got the stuff that's in there is incredible. The mind of God in there is incredible. This sermon, 5 through 7, is so compelling that you could spend 20, 30 weeks just preaching these three chapters of the Bible. It, it wouldn't get boring, I promise. Well, you know, it could get boring. But it wouldn't get boring if it was, if it was preached well, right? It wouldn't get boring if it was preached well. Why? Because the stuff that's in it is so life-changing. It's so otherworldly. It's so supernatural. Jesus says, in essence, I just don't want you to do things right. I even want you to think the right things. He's, he's, He's telling us how to not just behave correctly. He's telling us how to think correctly. This is a lot of compelling material here in 5 through 7. And there's a reason Matthew lays out the gospel this way. He says he calls followers, he begins to preach, and then he calls his followers to them and teaches them what he wants them to know. They have to learn the mind of God. And this is the first lesson for us today. People who desire to expand the reign of God should know the principles of the kingdom. We should know the principles of the kingdom. Just just look at Matthew 5 with me for a minute and then lick your finger. Do this. All right, I know it's disgusting. Don't shake hands afterwards. Don't shake my hand. All right, but we're going to turn pages here. Just look at all this. Five, the Beatitudes. Then, salt and light. I had to turn the page. The law and the prophets concerning anger, concerning adultery, concerning divorce, concerning oaths, concerning retaliation, love for enemy, concerning almsgiving, concerning prayer, concerning fasting, concerning treasures, the sound eye, serving two masters, do not worry, judging others, profaning the holy, ask, seek, knock, the golden rule, the narrow gate, the tree and its fruit, concerning self-deception, hearers and doers. That was like three pages. Think of all the material that's in there. We could study that the rest of our lives. It could keep us busy the the whole rest of our lives, learning the mind of God. And I love what Jesus says to wrap up the whole sermon. Chapter 7, verse 24, he says, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like the wise man who built his house on a rock. 
He just says, yeah, you can read it, but are you going to do it? Yeah, you can hear it, but are you going to do it? See, we, we have a, a misunderstanding sometimes that, that the kingdom of God and the principles of the kingdom are, are some, something that we can't get a hold of, that we can't comprehend, that, that, that we just have to learn uh, through, through you know, different life circumstances. No, the, the, the principles of the kingdom of God were spoken to Jesus' disciples, and he wants us to have them. This is the mind of God. Disciples have to be students. They have to learn the mind of God. You are not going to be able to expand the reign of God on earth unless you know the principles of the kingdom. Don't be a Christian who's not a Bible reader. You're missing the principles of the kingdom. You're missing the mind of God. You're missing the mind of God. What's the next thing that Jesus does with his disciples? Are you about chapter 8 now? Were you flipping with me as we talked about all those titles? What's the next thing that happens? Well, chapter 8 and 9 in Matthew are very interesting. Jesus goes about healing a bunch of people. He goes about doing a bunch of miracles. In essence, Jesus, as we talked about last week, was coming into the world and saying unabashedly, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What did he mean? Hey, I'm here and I have the unique opportunity. I am the unique one to be able to bring the will of God to bear on earth. Listen to me. It was a big statement by Jesus. He was saying, listen to me. I'm the one you need to listen to. If you listen to me, we can expand the kingdom of God on earth. Now he's proving that he has the power to do it. How does, he, how does he prove it? He heals people with leprosy. He heals people that are tremendously sick. He heals demoniacs. He heals the paralyzed. He raises the dead. He heals those that are unclean. He gives sight to the blind. He allows mutes to speak. He, he is showing that he has the power over all. He has God's power. And you know what? When we read the Gospels, I have to be honest with you because I was missing something for a long time as I read the Gospels. I would read these stories of Jesus' miracles, and I'd be like, ho-hum. That was great. What does that prove? I already believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Why do I need to see his miracles? That doesn't teach me anything. I know that Jesus had the power of God. I know that Jesus had the Holy Spirit living inside of him. I know he was the second person of the Trinity from before time began. I know he had the power to do miracles. Ho-hum. Let's get on to some other material. Jesus had power. Great. And then I saw something that was different, that caused me to read these stories just a little bit differently, because Jesus was not just introducing the concept that he had the power to bring about the reign of God. The stories in Matthew chapter 8 and 9, where his disciples are with him and he's ministering, show his heart for ministry. Now, I just said about all the healings that he just did, and you can sort of read those in the subject headings for Matthew chapters 8 and 9. You can see the healings that he did. But now let's think about it a different way, because I believe that these miracle stories show his heart in ministry. The first person he heals at the beginning of chapter 8 is a ceremonially unclean leper, someone who was completely ostracized from society, someone that he wasn't even supposed to get near to. Then he goes on and heals the servant of a Roman centurion. You know the Romans, the oppressive overlords of the Jews, the Gentiles who had come in and and were ruling the Jews in not nice ways? He goes ahead and heals the servant of a centurion. Then he goes across the Sea of Galilee to a region of Greek people, 
And he heals demoniacs in the region of Gadara, a Greek-speaking region. And so not only has he healed Romans now, he's healed Greeks. And he's healed the ceremonially unclean. And then he goes on and heals paralytics and blind men. And if you read other parts of the New Testament, the question about these paralytics and blind men are, what did they do that was wrong? Why are they cursed by God? And what's Jesus saying? No, in the reign of God, it's about healing and restoration. He, he heals even those who have been cursed by God. And in the middle of all these stories, what's really interesting is Matthew interposes his own story. And he says, and Jesus called me. I was a scumbag tax collector. I was the jerk of all society. I was the one that my own people hated tremendously. And Matthew puts that story right in the middle of all these healings, of all these people that Jesus wasn't supposed to be associating with. He even has time to heal a child in the midst of all of this. He heals a ceremonially unclean woman. What is Jesus doing and what is Matthew showing us about what Jesus is doing in chapter 8 and 9? How wide the kingdom of God. And what is he also showing his disciples? Guys, we minister to them and we minister to him and we minister to her and the kingdom is for him and the kingdom is for her and the kingdom is for them. You guys break down all your barriers. You guys break down all your walls. This is the heart of God. I have come for all. He doesn't just teach them the lessons of the kingdom, Matthew 5 through 7. He teaches them the heart of the kingdom, Matthew 8 and 9. He says, you've got to soften your heart. Do you think the disciples, that the minute that they learned about the kingdom, would have been ready to go and heal the servant of a Roman centurion? Do you think the disciples would have gone and placed their hands on the leper if Jesus hadn't first? What was Jesus doing? He was showing them God's heart. To become people who expand and extend the reign of God on earth, we don't just need to learn the lessons of the kingdom and the mind of God, we need to learn the heart of God as well. That's what he was teaching his disciples. He was showing, not only have I come in power, but look at the heart of God. Look at my, as we heard earlier, look at my goodness that is displayed towards all these people. There is enough compassion and love here on display in Jesus' ministry to keep us humbly reading our whole life long and breaking down the barriers that we've set up in our minds about how we are to minister and who we should minister to. And I want you to turn in your Bibles just one more page or two because chapter 10 wraps up this section of Matthew. He sends out the 12. He taught them his mind. He gave them his heart. And then he sent them out to minister like him. Do you see the pattern? Taught them his mind. Showed them his heart. And then sent them out to minister. The close of chapter 9 is that beautiful verse that talks about the harvest being plentiful, but the workers being few. Therefore, Pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into the field. He's getting his disciples ready. And before we go any further today, because there's two more points that we want to get to, and we have plenty of time to do that, I want to reiterate. If you want to expand the kingdom of God on earth, you have to become a student of the mind and the heart of Jesus. 
Don't think that you could just go out and expand the kingdom of God just by being you. No. Jesus had real things to teach us about how to think and about how to feel. He had real things to bring us to. And that's why I say, if you just read Matthew's chapter 5 through 9, you could be studying the rest of your life. There's, there, there, there's too much in there. And I know pastors say that, and it seems like a flippant assertion. But you're, you're never going to achieve perfection and all of that. There's always room for growth. Don't be a Pharisee. Don't be a Pharisee. Don't read the Bible and go, I got that, I'm moving on. I need an underlying nugget. Don't be that way. Read the Bible and say, Lord, search my heart. Search my heart. Is there any wicked way in me? God, change me. Mold me into the likeness of your son. That's what we do when we read the scriptures. Guys, let me talk to the men for just a minute. We so often want to read the scriptures just for the facts. We want to know something. We want to know just what king murdered what king murdered what king. We want to hear about the battles. We want to, we want to be able to win Bible trivia. And we read the Bible that way. Oh, I never knew that this guy was governor of Syria at this time. Oh, wait till Bible trivia comes around and I'll destroy my kids, you know? That, don't read it that way. Read it with your heart and mind engaged. We are so lazy that we don't, we don't become students of Jesus. But then we will we'll give lip service to the fact that, yeah, we want the kingdom of God to expand. But we're not students of Jesus. We have to become students of our Lord if we want the kingdom of God to expand. He was the kingdom. He is the kingdom. And he will be the kingdom. We have to study him if we want to know how to expand the kingdom of God. Chapter 10, he sends them out. You, well, you might be thinking at this point, okay, Pastor Matt, thanks a lot. You've just been preaching Christian disciplines today. We appreciate that. Christian disciplines, that's good. We need to hear that about every three months. You remember the karate kid? How many of you saw the karate kid? <laughs> right, right. Good. Do you remember Ralph Macchio? Do you remember what Mr. Miyagi makes that kid do? What does he make him do? Say it. Wax on, wax off. Now, did, 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 did the karate kid, before he was the karate kid, know what that was all about? No, he was just waxing Mr. Miyagi's car, right? And remember, Mr. Miyagi had him sanding the floor, painting the fence. I don't even like this movie, but I remember it, okay? I remember that stuff. Why? Because he learned the disciplines before he got to the place of being the karate kid. Before he entered the ring to fight, he had to learn the disciplines, right? How is it that we expect to expand the kingdom of God on this earth if we don't enjoy and get into and learn some of the disciplines of the Christian faith? How is it that we expect to do the things that Jesus did and even greater things Jesus said if we're not students of what we're supposed to be doing, if we don't engage in any disciplines? That's silly. That's ridiculous. We'll engage in disciplines for so many things. Some of you can quote movies like there's no tomorrow. Why? Because you discipline yourself to watch four every week. 
I mean, really, we entertain ourselves to death, but are we people who really get into the discipline so that we can learn what we're supposed to be doing? So I encourage you, as you're reading the scriptures, and it seems redundant, as you're reading the scriptures and you're trying to fight that inclination, I know this already, if you're reading the scriptures and going, I'll never be able to do that, I I won't have that type of power, the Holy Spirit will never work in me that way, I want you to think one thing, wax on, wax off. You practice the disciplines as best you can. God wants to build character in you so he can trust you with his power. He wants to build understanding in you so he can trust you to represent him. He's got to get your heart memory rather than your muscle memory. He's got to get your heart memory and your mind memory working before you're going to be able to expand and extend the kingdom of God into every nook and cranny of the earth. We have to be disciplined, folks. We have to be if we're really serious about expanding the kingdom of God. Go ahead and turn with me to Matthew chapter 13. We're going to see another point that it means to, to, extend, uh, to be a follower of Jesus Christ and to extend the reign of God. Last week we were in Matthew chapter 13 and we were making the case that we are the agents of God's kingdom. We are the agents that expand the kingdom of God. That's what we're here to do. But then there's three parables that are really, really neat in Matthew chapter 13, 44 and following. And they talk about a great exchange that the disciples of the kingdom must make. And we want to read about those real quick here to make our next point. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which someone found and hid. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. On finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had, and he bought it. Now, we're, we're real good with those two parables. Now, catch the third. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and caught fish of every kind. And when it was full, they drew it ashore, and they sat down, and they put the good into baskets, but threw out the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the furnace of fire, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You know, I have yet to hear a praise song about the third parable. I've heard a lot about, I'm giving you everything, Jesus. I'm giving up my entire life for you. You're the pearl of great price. No, nobody wrote that. That was horrible. But the point is, is that we sing all these declaration songs about, we're changing for the Lord. But why are we changing for the Lord? Because there is a reality that it is our job to change for the Lord because there will be a time when the patience of God runs out for this earth. We're up against the time clock. There will be a day when the patience runs out. And God just doesn't want half-hearted disciples because half-hearted disciples aren't disciples at all. There's only people who are fully in or not in at all. And he wants to remind us that if we want to be the agents of the kingdom, we need to be all in. I don't know, and I mean this sincerely because it's a parable and he doesn't lay it out. I'm not quite sure if some of the disciples are the bad fish, people who call themselves disciples, or people who haven't heard about Jesus are the bad fish. Either way, it makes me want to think very strongly about selling out for Jesus. Because there will be a day when God stops withholding his wrath from this earth. 
Right now, he is in patient mode. One day, he will not be in patient mode. What's the point here? There must be an exchange. For disciples of Jesus Christ, we must not only learn the mind of the kingdom, learn the heart of the kingdom, but we must exchange our kingdom for his. There must be some kind of exchange. Now, we read about those disciples, and we read about the temporal things that they exchanged, right? It's powerful to say that they left their boats and their nets, and they followed Jesus. A friend of mine who's sitting in the room today has talked for years about living in the ditch for Jesus. Let's just leave everything and go live in the ditch because, you know, the disciples didn't have a place to lay their head. Now, if she still wants to do that, God bless her. But I I, I just want to say, for most of us, Jesus is, well, for all of us, Jesus isn't walking the earth to follow today. I mean, he's, he's not standing, you know, down at Skip Park waiting for us, you know. He's not there. He's not, that, was a, that was a different time in ministry. And so uh, the exchange, we always think of the exchange as being temporal. You know, I, I, I've got to sell this, or I've got to get rid of this, and then I can take on this for Jesus. But I think there's something deeper that these disciples had going on. It wasn't so much the temporal things that they gave up. It was their identity. They left their boats and their nets. Now, if you're a man, you know exactly what that means. If you're a tradesman, they they left their tools. If if you're a pastor, I guess you left your Bible, right? They left what they knew. They left who they were and became something completely different. That's what the cool narrative is about Peter as you read the Gospels and into the epistles. The cool narrative about Peter is not that he left his boats and his nets. They don't really even mention the nets and the boats again. You see him go from being this impetuous, self-centered, wanting to be the leader but not knowing how, to this awesome pillar of faith in Jesus Christ. His identity changed. It's an identity change that God wants from us. He wants to exchange our old identity for the new. Want further proof? In John chapter 3, Jesus talks about the kingdom of God. And you know what the context is in John chapter 3, him talking about the kingdom of God? You must be born again. You want to enter the kingdom of God? You must be born again. We have to exchange our identity, and that's just as scary as leaving the nets in the boats. I remember when I was 18 and I felt the call of God on my life to be a pastor. I was excited about that because I felt like I had some direction, but that also terrified me because I was afraid of losing my identity. I didn't want to become a pastor. I wanted to become a pastor. I just didn't want to become a pastor. I was a fun guy. I was the life of the party. I, 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 I could be crazy. I enjoyed that part of my personality. And I was afraid that I would have to become this paragon of decorum. Someone who lost all the fun in their lives. That was what I was afraid of, and I remember. And you think this is weird, but I would, I would sit up nights thinking, I, I, don't, I, I know I'm supposed to be a pastor, but I don't want to lose who I am. It horrified me. I don't want to lose who I am. Well, I have to be this paragon of decorum? Will I have to always be diplomatic? Am I ever allowed to say just what I think? And God's helped me through that, and I think you know that I am no paragon of decorum. (laughs) But what is it about being called to Jesus that makes us worry about who we're going to become? Because we know intuitively that Christ wants our identity to change from ours 
to his. And I realized something, and it, was, it really was for me, and hopefully this is helpful for some of you today, it really was an, an incredible moment. God designed my personality, and he's not trying to take it away. But he also knows my sinful nature, and he is trying to take that away. He's trying to make me into the likeness of his son, but he designed my personality. He's not trying to make me someone I'm not. I imagine Peter, even in his old age, was still a bit excitable. But he was a different man, wasn't he? And I I, I say this especially to some of you who are a little bit older in the faith. God still wants to be molding and making you. He still wants to be changing your identity. He still wants to be doing something to change your heart and your mind. Because if we really desire to extend the effective will of God on this earth, We need to forfeit our identity for our leader's identity. And once again, this is not a throwaway statement because I've made two of them now and this is about to be the third. There is enough in the New Testament about your new identity in Christ to keep you changing your whole life long. What's so good about your present identity anyways? Divorce that from personality and think more about your nature. For a moment. Think about your nature, not about your personality. Think about your nature, your sin nature, your, your, your flesh versus what's holy. That's what God's trying to change. If you're funny now, you'll be funny in 20 years. If you're serious now, you'll be serious in 20 years. Some of you are like, I wouldn't want to be funny. If so whatever you are, God's not trying to remake your personality. He gave you your personality. He's trying to take the, your, your, your sin nature and expunge it and make you like his son. You know when I see him changing my identity? When Jesus says, and I, or the Spirit of the Lord says to me, go minister to that person. And I think, well, I'm intimidated by that type of person. You couldn't mean that. There's somebody better to do that. Or go minister to that person. Well, Jesus, my natural inclination is to despise that type of person. That's the identity change. Why? Why do I know that? He changed that in his disciples, didn't he? Matthew chapter 8 and 9. This isn't Pastor Matt's folksy wisdom. It's the Apostles Matt's folksy wisdom. Through the words of Jesus Christ. He changed the way they thought about people. And he changed the way they ministered to people. The final thing I want to talk to you about is this. And this is perhaps the hardest of all. Will we remain vigilant? In these things. Will we remain vigilant in learning the mind of God, learning the heart of God, and changing our identity? Will that become the definition of who we are? You know, I'm not going to read them today for the sake of time. Do you know the final two parables that Jesus speaks about the kingdom in Matthew chapter 25? And you can write this if you're taking notes today. What are the two things he, he ends with when he talks about the kingdom of God? The parable of the ten virgins and the parable of the talents. Will you remain vigilant, cognizant of your mission, mindful of what God's put you here to do? When God returns, is he going to find you napping? Or is he going to find you doing the work he's put you on the earth to do? And this is tough. It's hard to remain constantly aware of who we are and what we're here to do. Vigilance is a discipline. And I ask you this in a very practical way. What is it each morning that reminds you to stay vigilant? 
What is it each morning that reminds you to stay vigilant? And, and for, for those of you who already are morning prayer and study people, well, you know what it is. For those of you who couldn't pray and study in the morning because you're an evening person, you're going, I don't know. Maybe it's that prayer before your feet hit the floor. Maybe it's that plaque that you lay next to your bed. Maybe it's something that you paste on the cereal box. Whatever it might be that says, I am a servant of Jesus Christ, my job today is to let the Holy Spirit empower me to extend the reign of God and the effective will of God into every nook and cranny of my life. God help me. But too often we get up, we go to work, we get through our day, and there's never that vigilant awareness, that cognition going on of who we are and what we're supposed to be doing. People who make an impact for the kingdom are vigilant. They're mindful of who they are and what they're here to do. So not only do we have to learn the mind of the kingdom, the heart of the kingdom, exchange our identity for that of Christ, but we have to just stay on it. And I, I implore you today, for those of you who your heart really is for, Jesus, you really do love the Lord, but you know today, I'm not vigilant. Find a way to remind yourself how to be vigilant. Find a way. Put a plaque at the end of your bed if you need to. So the first thing that you see is there. Put it on the cereal box. For those of you who are morning people, well then do your prayer and study in the morning. Do it. And for those of you who aren't morning people, give it a try. Doing your prayer and study in the morning. But the key is, are you doing things to remain vigilant to remind you of who you are and why you're here? I conclude this morning with the exact same quote that we read last week. From Dallas Willard, the greatest issue facing the world today with all its heartbreaking needs is whether those who by professing it or by culture are identified as Christians will become disciples, students, apprentices, practitioners of Jesus Christ, steadily learning from him how to live the life of the kingdom of the heavens into every corner of human existence. Will we be people who become students of Jesus Christ, steadily learning from him how to live the life of the kingdom? We have an awesome responsibility and a tremendous privilege. We're growth agents, but will we engage in the disciplines that allow us to do the job we were put here to do? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray today that you would make us not just hearers of the word, but doers of the word. Jesus, may we become your students, your apprentices. May we become people who really take an interest in every aspect of the mind and the heart of the kingdom of God. May we be people who are ready to exchange our identities for yours. May we be people who every day remain mindful of who we are and what we're here to do. Lord, may we be people who extend the effective will of God on this earth. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.